0: indoor snow and sleet in the morning and with a low around 32 uh, northwest winds around six miles per hour chance of precipitation tomorrow night is 50 percent, with no snow or sleet accumulation expected and wednesday chance of rain mainly after 4 p.m cloudy with a high near 42 coming up
1: next making waves stay tuned
0: Good evening and welcome to WJFF's Making Waves. Making Waves is an hour-long radio magazine that airs here on WJFF every Monday evening at this time. Kevin Graff is executive producer and audio engineer for Making Waves. Theme music for Making Waves is composed and performed by Cindy Rickmond. My name is Barbara and I'm your host for tonight. We start with the Kingfisher Project. It's our weekly examination about the addiction crisis. Tonight, we go back into the archives, uh, seeking to answer the question, who becomes an addict and why? Uh, as we will sometimes say here on the Kingfisher Project, we always welcome the input and questions of listeners. And over the past week, we did have that question. Why do people start using drugs? Uh, such as heroin, for instance, or any other, uh, prescribed or unprescribed drugs? Uh, so in an attempt to, uh, Start that discussion. We went back to our archives and uh, found a piece that was provided to us by WJFF's Gandalf. And he is conducting an interview with a addiction counselor in this episode. And that's from, it goes back to uh, 2015. So we'll, uh, before we get into that, let me just tell you that the Kingfisher Project is an information and radio project based at public radio station WJFF right here in Jeffersonville, New York. The project was established in 2014 to honor the life of a young woman, Rebecca Pizal, who was shot and killed at the age of 20 um, in 2014 due to her addiction to heroin. And uh, the project is named for the injured bird Rebecca re- rescued and wrote about while she was a senior in high school, answering an assignment given to her by a teacher. Her former teacher read the essay at Rebecca's memorial service, and since then, Rebecca's mother, Julie, who cannot be here tonight, uh, but the rest of us here on the Kingfisher Project and Making Waves, have carried on the idea of spreading awareness about addiction and the uh, opioid epidemic through the Kingfisher Project weekly broadcast here on WJFF. So without further ado, we will go to that segment from 2015, hosted and with an interview by WJFF's own Gandalf. And welcome to the Kingfisher Project here on Making Waves at WJFF. Tonight we have a segment that features an interview with WJFF's own Gandalf, interviewing Gary Rosenbluth, a addiction an addiction counselor for many years. And we'll hear them talk about a few topics, including what is addiction and why heroin? Why is heroin the big drug? on the streets and in people's lives right now. And the Kingfisher Project is a program here at WJFF launched earlier this year and it's named, it's really in honor of a young woman, Rebecca Pizol, who died at the age of 20 last summer in a heroin related incident. The Kingfisher Project uh, refers to an essay that Rebecca wrote when she was a senior in high school about rescuing a bird a bird rescue that, that she uh, participated in when everyone else told her to give up. And the project is named for Rebecca and for the Kingfisher, and you can find out more about that background at the com. But right now, let's hear from Gandalf and Gary Rosabuth.
1: Good evening. My name is Gandalf. And as part of the Kingfisher Project, it is my pleasure to introduce Gary Rosenbluth, who is an experienced counselor in individual family and group education in the field of uh, alcohol and drugs. Gary has been part of the Sullivan County community for the past 10 years and wishes to help stem the disease of addiction. Let's go right to the chase, Gary. What is addiction? Who gets addicted?
2: And why? Well, number one, it is my pleasure to be here. I guess one of the first questions people always ask me is, how did I get into the field of addiction? I went to college in the 1960s not knowing what I wanted to major in, and somehow I wandered into the field of psychology. It's always been my desire to reach out and help people so I majored in the field of psychology not knowing exactly what part of psychology I wanted to go into during one of my early internships I had my first drug case it was a gentleman who was in his early thirties who started a computer company when computers were a neophytic industry they were just starting and he was in the right place at the right time by the time he was 34 years old, he became a multi-millionaire, married, two kids, beautiful house. He started using cocaine, and after one year, it took away everything. It took away his house, his business, his marriage, and his children. And that was the day I said to myself, what is the power, what is the power that a substance, or a drink can have over a over such a such a nice individual. It mystified me. That was a day I knew what I wanted to do. I said it doesn't have to be, and I want to dedicate my life to helping people who have addiction problems.
1: And so you have dedicated your life to this, and. Uh uh, what, you know, how have you developed this interest in professionally and otherwise?
2: Well, I guess one of the first questions you have to ask yourself is who gets addicted? What type of person gets addicted? And you come to realize that addiction is an equal opportunity employer. It affects the community at large. It crosses race, it crosses religion, sex, economic status. Over the years I've been doing this, I've seen I've seen doctors, I've seen lawyers, I've seen judges who had addiction problems, I've seen sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, and even grandparents. It's a it's 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 a habit that is cross generational and affects everybody.
1: What's the draw? Why does it have such an effect on so many people?
2: When you look at the numbers of people who are addicted, it is absolutely staggering. We estimate that about 10 percent of the entire population is addicted and for everyone who is addicted we also estimate that it touches at least four or five people around them who love them that is approximately 50% of the population who's affected directly or indirectly through the use of addictive substances in a report in november of 19, uh, in a report in, in november of 2014 by the national survey on drug use and health it showed that an estimated 20.4 million people in the United States used some kind of illicit drug in the past 90 days. In the year 2014, there were over 4 billion prescriptions written in this country by medical doctors. In some states, people were on as many as 17 uh, medications at one time unfortunately there is a stigma to addiction there is a stigma to getting help of all those people who are addicted only about 11.2% of them get or go for help so the numbers are staggering and it's affecting a majority of the, of the, of the people in the United States
1: why is it that so few people go for help and why has it taken uh this country so long to recognize the in the significance of these numbers in terms of what what they do to the total population?
2: I would imagine when someone is suffering under the use of an addiction it's it's embarrassing. They don't want to broadcast it. They don't want to tell their parents. They don't want to tell their, their their friends. They certainly don't want to tell their employers. They keep it under wraps. They keep it to themselves. I think in this country, uh, especially during hard economic times, the general population doesn't want to deal with addiction. They don't want to deal with people they they are afraid of addicts, that they don't know how to deal with them. We would rather spend our money on filling potholes, for example, in our streets and dealing with people who, who, who are addicted.
1: Then what occurred that has suddenly brought this problem to the forefront? And we have uh, uh, such organizations as WJFF and the Kingfisher Project investigating this. And suddenly... It seems as though uh, the entire country is a, is becoming aware of the addiction problem, especially, I guess, now in heroin. What happened that changed all of this?
2: I think you just, I think the reason for that you just said over the last number of years there has been a epidemic of heroin use in our country. That has been under-publicized, it's in most most high schools, it's, it, it crosses all segments of our society, it is just burgeoned into a major problem, and just by sheer force, by sheer gravity, we are now have to grapple with this epidemic.
1: And how are we grappling with this epidemic at this point? We surely have not even begun to do all the things we need to do in order to stop it, but what what do you, how are we beginning to to deal with it do you think
2: well i think there are some i think there are some questions that we have to ask before we get to that subject i guess one of the sub, one of the questions one of the questions are why why do people use people use for various reasons they use for reward I worked a long, hard day today, a long, hard week this week. I deserve to have a drink tonight. I deserve to use a drug tonight. They use when they're happy. They use when they're sad. They use when they're depressed. They use when they're stressed. They use, one one of the major reasons why people turn to addiction is they model their behavior after their parents. Certainly, a parent who smokes cigarettes, the child has a higher propensity to turn to cigarettes than a parent who doesn't smoke cigarettes. In addition, I, I tend to find that when I do a um, um, an alcohol or drug intake and I ask people what age do they tend to start using, it usually is just about the same number, age 16. Why the age sixteen? Simply because sixteen is about the age when we start going out in groups, when we start going out with our friends. Certainly, an eight or nine, a char- eight or nine-year-old child does not go out at night without. But at age sixteen, a child starts going out and gets involved with a group, and the psychology of group pressure is absolutely uh, essential to understand and is one of the major reasons why drug use starts we all want to be part of a group especially around our teenage years so the power of the group is one major reason why people start to use how do
1: these 16 year olds who are joining these groups and these groups discover where to get the, uh, the drug of choice at the particular time how do they learn about this
2: well, they, if, if we talk about alcohol, alcohol is, is, so in, is so entrenched in our society, they notice your parents drinking, they notice people around them drink. It's a self-perpetuating type of force. We go out with groups and we tend to find that 16-year-olds, when they're sitting by themselves, they're going to have a tendency to drink, or use another so-called gateway drug, such as marijuana. That's how the problem tends to start.
1: Can I, you can you explain what you mean for a minute by the word uh, phrase gateway drug?
2: A gateway drug is a drug that leads to higher drug use. It's, it's it's it tend to be drugs that we we underestimate the power of. Certainly, when we hear the word heroin, we all have a knee jerk reaction as it being a dangerous drug. But in our society, when we hear the word alcohol, which is legal at over the age of 21, when we hear the word marijuana, we don't have that knee-jerk reaction to those drugs. Those are the drugs that tend to be the gateway drugs, and then uh, at that point, drug use starts to intensify, starts to perpetuate in, in oneself, and they tend to go on to harder Uh, harder type of substances.
1: And what happens then? What happens to the individual, the 16-year-old who does go on to harder substances? Does this become, for example, a disease? Does it mimic a disease?
2: Well, I think one first has to answer, what are the drugs of addiction? The drugs of addiction are drugs that affect the central nervous system. They're called CNS drugs. In that, it affects heart rate, respiration, and blood pressure. Of the drugs that are classified as central nervous system drugs, there are five categories of central nervous system drugs. We have the depressants, things that depress central nervous system activity, such as alcohol. Alcohol is a depressant drug. The second category is opposite of depressants, the stimulants. Stimulants that raise central nervous system activity tend to get us wired, such as caffeine, such as cocaine. The third group are the hallucinogenics, PCP, LSD. The fourth group is a long word called the benzodiazepines, or the benzos. Those are the stimulants that tranquilizes the antidepressant drugs, And the fifth category, the one that the Kingfisher Project is focusing on, are the opiates. Opiates are drugs that dull pain, such as Percocet, Oxycodone, and heroin. Now, every drug is not a central nervous system drug. You can go into your local grocery store and purchase as much aspirin as you can buy. You can Overdose on aspirin if you swallow an entire bottle of 100 aspirin, but you can't be addicted to aspirin because it does not affect the central nervous system. I think a question which has to be asked is why why is heroin so popular today? What is it about heroin? Because we certainly have a knee-jerk reaction as a society and as an individual when we hear the word heroin. What is going on that makes heroin so popular?
1: Well, I'm certainly waiting to hear the answer to this.
2: Well, I, about eight, nine months ago, I received a phone call from a mother saying that she just found out that her 27 year old son was using heroin. And she asked if she can come in immediately. Herself, her husband, and the, and the son it came into my office about 90 minutes later. And they were sitting on the couch directly across from me. And the mother looked at me, and you could see the fear in her eyes as a parent. And she said, Gary, why heroin? This is a kid who went to all Ivy League schools. Why would he... he, he never used drugs in his life as far as we know. Why would he start with heroin, of all drugs? And I looked at her, and there was something that was not clicking. There was something missing. And I said to her, I asked her if she had any other children. She said, yes, we did. I said, what do you mean you did? She said, we had another son who was about five years older than our current son. And about six, seven years ago he was parking cars at the local golf course and it was a lightning storm. And the golf course failed to sound the alarm for the impending lightning storm. Well a lightning bolt came down, struck a tree, cutting the tree in half, And the tree fell down and pierced the kid's stomach, killing him instantly in the parking lot. Now it started to click in my mind. She lost a child. She doesn't want to particularly lose another child. And I said to her, now it makes sense. Now it makes perfect sense to me why he would use heroin. And she looked at me quiz, she looked at me and she says, that makes sense. I said, well, let me get something straight with both of you. It never makes sense to me to use a substance to deal with a problem. But if he was going to pick a drug, that is the perfect drug. Heroin is the perfect drug. It's like putting a key in a lock. She says, what do you mean? I said, well, why do some people like hamburgers and why do some people like hot dogs? Every one of the of the of the drug groups have a personality type of the type of person who is going to gravitate towards that type of drug. Someone who is meek, who has a meek personality, is not going to tend to gravitate to a depressant substance. They're going to gravitate to a stimulant such as cocaine. Someone who's wired who has a very aggressive personality, is not going to want a stimulant drug. They're not going to particularly like the stimulant drug. They're going to gravitate to a depressant drug. You tend to find that children who have ADD or ADHD, the perfect drug for them is marijuana. Marijuana crosses two drug classifications. It's a depressant slash Hallucinogenic drug. It slows down the RPMs in the brain so they can tend to function. These kids are not going to want a stimulant drug. The question is, what is the personal characteristics of the person who's going to turn to the opiate drugs, such as heroin? That is a two-fold answer. No, and, uh, uh, number one, they tend, uh, uh, number one, opiates are drugs that dull pain they dull physical pain so the first characteristic in my opinion is these are people who don't know how to deal with physical pain but more importantly they are people who don't know how to deal with the pain of life and I looked at her and I said when you talk about the pain of life he lost a brother who he loved five, six years ago. He doesn't know how to deal with the pain of life. Heroin is the perfect drug. And the kid looked at me with his mouth open, and his first statement to me was, you get it. You understand it. When I was growing up, I was born in 1948. If I wanted to go to the library, which was about five miles from my house, I had to walk, take my bike, or get a ride. What do people have to do today? They have to walk six feet to their computer and go on Google. When I was a a teenager going back to college, I had to call my mother to tell her I got back to school safely, I had to find a phone booth so I can call my mother collect. Kids today have to reach in their pocket and take out their cell phones. We have become a society of instant gratification. With the advent of technology, we have become a society of instant gratification. People do not know how to work on their problems anymore. I have kids come into my office and they're sitting five feet from each other and they are texting to each other. They're not using their lips, they are texting to each other. We have become a society of instant gratification. We don't know how to work on our problems anymore. Opiates are the perfect solution. because it dulls the pain of life. When someone has a problem with life and they're going to pick a drug, the opiate is perfect. Unfortunately, heroin is now easier to get than marijuana. It is 10 times cheaper than other opiates such as Percocet or Oxycodone.
0: And that was Gary Rosenbluth, Addiction Counselor, speaking with WJFF's Gandalf here for the Kingfisher Project, and we'd like to now
3: In 2018, I was asked to address the... Hi, I'm Bill Williams, a volunteer producer with the Kingfisher Project, the radio segment about substance use disorder and the addiction epidemic that airs every week at 7 p.m. on Making Waves here at WJFF. We want to learn from you. What do you want to know about substance abuse and the drug epidemic? Send us your questions and we'll work on finding answers. We'll air what we discover to help others as well. Contact us at the Kingfisher Project One at gmail.com.
0: And that concludes the Kingfisher Project for tonight. Coming up next on Making Waves, the exhibition Pulling Prints is now on display at the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance in Narrowsburg. And right now we're going to hear from the curator of that exhibit artist judith fisher bodman she is uh practicing her craft and art in blooming grove pennsylvania and uh the exhibit features 55 printmakers new and established far and wide uh from across the area and now we'll hear from judith
4: Story. I moved out east, Pratt got me out east, to the east coast, uh, and got my MFA um, in printmaking. Ever since I had this job, there would be different shows that came through. Some had little prints. I've had um, Robin Dintman had a show here that was uh, based on printmaking. Prints, different kinds of print, prints in here. But I've always wanted to have a printmaking show. So as the gallery director... I sort of nudge people and go, wouldn't you like the a show on printmaking? And they go, yeah, yeah, and then it's a big job. It's a big job. So for the last five or six years, I've been nudging people. And Judith took up the torch. Give her a round of applause. And with the people that she knew, because she's a printmaker, and through the DVAA, we have 55 artists in this show with 60 individual pieces in here. There's a few few that have more than one, but mostly we pared it down so that everybody had um, one piece in the show, and as Judith will tell you in a moment and show you in a moment, uh, the other thing that was really important to us was that we had a lot of different mediums. Yeah. So we have the showcase here. I'm going to put little labels in the showcase, but the main thing was is we wanted to bring the medium which has so many different ways to make prints and there's even some that we don't even have up here but we have just about all we're not sure about it (laughs) (laughs) so um and when we're when we're done um ask questions i mean there's i am so happy with this show i don't know if you noticed but we sort of have the black and white wall Mm -hmm. here we have sort of a floral wall in the back and the one thing that someone said to me that I didn't really realize is, and maybe it's because of the, the, some of the pre-things people think of printmaking, they go, there's, there's a lot of color up here. You know, most people don't think about color. They think of a print, you know, like a woodcut, a classic kind of thing. So that was the other energizing thing for us. You know, Madeline Jones' big piece here with the cut plates and the color, so that it was, it all came together very well, and I can't thank Judith enough. Judith, give Judith a hand, okay?
5: And I honestly cannot thank Rocky enough. I could have never, in a million years, would I have known how to do curate a show like this. I was a little overwhelmed initially, and I'm so grateful that I did it because I have such a passion for printmaking. I mean, from the very first printmaking class I took, and when I was in college, way back in the dark ages, in like 1971, I got into my first printmaking class, and I thought, "Oh my God, I love the smell, I love the process, I like the excitement. Oh My God, you can make more than one? Are you serious?" I mean, it was just, you know. And then I would just trip from one process to the next to the next, you know. And but I, what I really settled on that I loved the most was etching. But now that in the last few years, I've gotten into all forms of printmaking. I'm also exploring a lot about how to be more, less toxic in my printmaking. Mm-hmm. And that's a big consideration mm-hmm. to do now, and uh, that's been pretty interesting. And and because I'm on Facebook, I go into a million different ones, uh, Facebook pages for uh, linoleum block printing, for woodcock printing, for solar plate printing, for um, uh for everything. So I've started to meet people from all around the world, because the World Wide Web is really the World Wide Web, and I got an artist that submitted work from um, Paris, oh. and I had people from South Carolina and Georgia and all over the place, that the only way I know them, is from the groups that I'm on on Facebook. So I think it's an an incredible tool when it's used that way. And um, I really, really, really love printmaking. There's just everything about it I love. I love to teach it. I love to be with other printmakers. I like the the happy accidents that happen. I like finding out about a new method. And I think, oh my god, I never thought to do that. How is that even possible? I enjoy that a lot. So these are my two pieces that I brought. And one of the reasons why I have two pieces in here is because it's the only reduction linoleum block print that anybody submitted to the show, and I wanted to show that.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: And this is a, also the only multi-plate etching. And I actually brought the plates for how I printed this also. So, But I wanted to have wood engraving represented. I wanted to have a traditional wood block printing like the color one over the stairs there. I wanted to have uh, um, abstract expressions. I wanted to have it all. So, and I think the show has really been monumental in doing that. I mean, some of the pieces are just so interesting. i crazy about the, Wells? Nancy, Nancy Wells. Yeah. I mean, that thing is crazy. Yep. I just, you know, I love it. I really do. And I mean, I mean the whole premise of it, everything like that is just amazing. I really, really like it a lot. But um, did anyone ask some questions about any kind of printmaking at all? Because I've done it all. <laughs> <laughs> I have done it all. And about next, less toxic. Print, well, let me talk about that. In the old days, if I wanted to well, do.
4: Well, how about
3: historically? What would be the earliest uh, kind of printmaking?
5: Well, you go back to Rembrandt. I mean, he was doing printmaking on um, copper plates using uh, 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 caustic salts and stuff, which is kind of kind of what we've got back to now. We're using salts. Instead of acid. When I did my first printmaking for years, I printed it with nitric acid or hydrochloric acid mixed with potassium chlorate, um, Dutch mordant, all that stuff, which is so bad for you. And I really tried to mitigate the, the how dangerous it was as much as I could, but it was just accepted like, hey, you're a printmaker. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to suck it up. That's part of the deal. And now, you know as we're getting older and everything that you know you start thinking like you know there's a cumulative effect effect of all that that I want to I want to try to mitigate as much as I possibly can so for instance this uh, etching I printed on a a zinc plate which is less expensive than printing on a, a copper plate and I have four plates here the first one I printed was with yellow and then I go into the the green down to red and then I have the blue, and then finally the black. But the cool thing about this plate was I printed the whole thing with uh, copper sulfate. And copper sulfate, it looks like drainer, it's like a blue, crystalline thing. So you mix uh, half copper sulfate, half uh, table salt that doesn't have um, um, iodine in it, just regular kosher salt. And uh, you make up this thing, you can breathe it, you can, you know, the only times that you really have to be a little bit careful is when you're actually mixing the two dry powders that, you know, something that's doesn't wear dust mask. But uh, other than that, once it's mixed up, it's pretty, it's really non-toxic. They actually use copper sulfate in vineyards to fight different types of molds and mildews that grow on on the, the, the vineyards, on the plants. Um, and to dispose of it, it's a lot less of a problem, and all that. Like I don't have to deal with. It. I have bottles and bottles of nitric acid, hydrochloric. I don't know what the hell to do with them. Mm. You know, I mean, it's it's crazy. I don't know how to dispose of them properly. I have to take them someplace. But potassium chloride, I really don't have to worry about it too much. But I etched all of these with that substance, and I've done a couple little copper sulfate um, etchings and it's eh, it's kind of weird to use because. You know when you use acid it bubbles up and you have a big goose feather and you you feather the the plate and keep the bubbles down because wherever there's a bubble the action stops and you you know I made my husband made me an acid box which had a glass shield so I could kind of reach in and do it without breathing too many of the fumes this is so weird the first time I put it in uh, a plate in there I thought what the hell have I done it was just turned instantly to black slime. It was the most horrible-looking stuff I'd ever seen in my whole life, and I thought, there can't possibly even be anything there. And I've since learned that you have to kind of keep take your finger with rubber gloves on and keep clearing off the slime that grows on there. But the weird part is, when you pour it back in the bottle, they say copper sulfate, it takes the etched zinc and it makes it look like copper. It's like copper flakes. It's so strange. I mean, the whole chemistry of it is... I, and I substitute teach in our high school, and I was in for the chemistry teacher last week. I was walking back past the table, and they were taking notes, and they were talking about copper sulfate. I said, copper sulfate? And I said, I just used it this morning. You had a two-hour delay. I said, I etched the plate. And they all looked at me, and they said, copper sulfate? I said, yeah. I said, if you mix it with salt, and you mix it with water, you can get the solution that's, that can eat through metal. And they were like, really? I said, yeah, really. And I started showing them on my phone work I had done. I said, there's chemistry all through printmaking, Mm -hmm. totally. And my number one way that I usually do a plate is I work on copper, and I use uh, ferric chloride, which looks like iodine. And um, it is a great thing to work with, because it's another thing. You really can put your fingers in and out of it. You can rinse your hands off. You don't have that terrible fear that you have when you're working with uh, acid. Um, and it does a beautiful line, a deep line that has just a little bit of a rag to the edge of it, so it's perfect for, for grabbing ink. Um, in my printmaking, I use a lot of aqua tints. I manipulate the plate a bunch of different ways, so that's my etching thing. And then, so I started taking painting classes with uh, Peter Fiore, who's an amazing painter. And I've taken a lot of painting classes from him in the last couple of years. And I did a painting that looked like that. And I thought, man, that would make a kick ass etching if I could figure out how to do it. And then I said, why don't I do it like a planographic method? In that you're working on the surface and you're actually rolling out blends. And I said, "Trying to get my head wrapped around it because you have to work reversed, because mm-hmm. left is right and right is left. And you have to work from the back to the front and um, they call it, uh, it's a reduction method back in the old days when it wasn't politically incorrect to say it was called the suicide method because once you kept carving away and carving away a plate at the very end there's nothing left there's no going back you're, you're it's done so um, that was a lot of fun to do because i had no idea how it was going to turn out and that's what i love most about prayer making is that excitement you really are kind of flying by the seat of your pants, so that a lot of the times you don't know for sure. Can I make this work? Or hey, that didn't work, but boy, that looks kind of cool. You know, it's 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 different than any other kind of uh, uh, process for explaining yourself or, or expressing yourself. So, anybody have? Yes. There. Explain how. This comes out when you start first, and then the second, the third, the fourth. All right. And but how these colors go together? Right. Well, I, I, first the first plate is this plate.
4: Hold it up in the light too, so people in the back just kind of move it around so they can yeah. sort of see the surface.
3: And tilt it back and forth. So, yeah, we see the surface. Yeah.
4: So that's the yellow.
5: That's the yellow. Okay. And you always print from the lightest to the darkest. I mean, that's not a, a, a total rule, but. It's the most logical way to print It's to print from the lightest color to the darkest color. And um, but you can you know what, there's no rule that can't be broken. About the only rule I can think that you can't break really, and I've even done that, is that once you put an aquatin in you can't put a line in because you're working on top of little tiny bumps. You could put an aquatin over top of the line, but you can't do the reverse. But I've even done that. So <laughs> I mean there's no rule that you can't and then the second plate that I printed was, I went to this one, and this is the, the first plate was all the yellow you see in the background, and this one is, I ran a blend. I actually rolled out a color, with a big roller, and um, I put it across this, and then I rubbed it in. Because when you do a, an etching, it's not a planographic method where you're working on the surface, you're working in the grooves, the etched lines. So the way you do this is you put the ink on, and then you got to take the ink off. Mm-hmm. And the way you take the ink off is by, first I use the tarlatan, which is like the, the material they used to make old slips at, like back in the 1950s when they used to go out like that. And you take that, you ball it up, you, you scour the plate, and then after you get down to a certain amount, warm the plate up a little bit on a, a, a heat bed that I had until I feel it get a little bit warm, and then I start using the side of my hand and just quick little swipes like this, because I want to take it off the surface and leave it in the lines. Mm -hmm. I don't want to drag it out of the lines. So that's why it's an etching. You want to get down into the grooves or into the aquatints and leave the color, but take it off the surface. So if you look at this one, you see the bird is still all open. You see the trees are all open, but you see this down here. So I did kind of a reddish brown, and I put the green. And to think about these, there's no two that are the same. They're all different. And I don't care about that either.
3: So is there a drawing first?
5: Yeah, I did a drawing first. And
3: then you have to register these things so they line up properly? Mm -hmm.
5: That is like the trip. Yeah. Because the registration, I used to have a very difficult time doing my registration. And thank God for the World Wide Web. I met a woman, uh, and I was saying, Chris, I'm really struggling with my registration. I do these Mylar grids, and I put them in, and it's always a little shift. There's a little movement of the plate that's not quite right. I don't know, is the plate warped, or what the heck is going on? And she said, well, what are you using? And I said, I'm just drawing it out on the thing, and I'm trying to register it in there. And she said, why aren't you using a... a um, a jig in a bar. And I said, a jig in a bar? What the hell's a jig in a bar? And I thought it was some kind of a drink or something. <laughs> and she said, um, so I went to Crown, C-R-O-W-N-E. They make a whole line of books. They're one of the biggest printmaking schools, um, workshops, I mean, in the world. They're amazing. And they've done a series of books. I bought all of their books. Because there was one that was just about aquitins, There's one just about line work. There's one just about every kind of printmaking. I devoured them, because I thought I knew everything there was to know about printmaking after 45 years of doing printmaking. I learned so much from those books, it was unbelievable. But the bar and the jig, you make an L out of a, I used an old etching plate that I no longer needed that I had canceled. And I had it cut down at a metal fabricating place where it's just a shallow L and then I attach it to my press bed, and then you make a thing called a jig, where I took another plate, and I have a big L. So when you put the, the first plate down on the etching bed, you lock it into the jig, and it's there, and it's right where it's supposed to be, and then you carefully pull the jig off. You leave the bar. It's, it's permanently attached to the press. But you take off the jig, and you move it, and that plate belongs right there and nowhere else. So then when you put your big piece of damp paper on top of there, and you run it through your etching press with the big, gigantic rollers and you know hundreds and hundreds of pounds of pressure underneath the blankets, and it comes out the other side, you keep the, the paper locked underneath the rollers so it can't go anywhere. And then you swap out that plate. You put the jig back in, and you put the next plate in. Lock it in place. Remove the jig. So does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And then you do that through the through the whole process. And what you end up with then is that, that they build on top of each other.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm. So I mean, it, it was this was a crazy endeavor for first off to do four plates and to do it with uh, copper sulfate, which I'd never used before. And I thought, well, let's see what happens. You know, and I was thrilled with mm-hmm. how it worked all out. I mean, it's a different kind of edge. It does, it's not like using acid where you get a real sharp line. This is fuzzy.
4: Judith, can I step in for a second? Because sure. I know what you're asking. And if you look around, like, like Judith said, is that in this, the, the different pieces that we have in the show, you can kind of go around. It's listed in the program what the medium is. Okay. And truthfully, printmaking started out as a planographic. So you had a piece of wood, you cut in it, you put your roller on the top, you put your paper on there, and it printed what was on top. Right. So then later became this etching process because it had a lot more fine detail. Is the etching and the uh, the aquatint, which is like a tone. It's
0: like a tone. Like yeah.
4: tone. Yeah. Aquatint is is little little salt that melts, and then you have these little spaces left. Aquatint, t- aqua or even scratching into the plate. And like Judith says, you then put it through the pressure, and the, the ink comes out of those lines. So you can get more detail that way. Then there's a thing called a serigraph or a silkscreen, which is actually a screen that has something blocked off on it. You, you pull ink across it, and it comes through like you print T-shirts. And a silkscreen, the term is used most for commercial processes, and serigraph is used for the fine art, the fine art part of it. But the planographic is like these woodcuts that are over here. The other one is monoprints, which is on the plate, you put your paint on there, and then you put your paper on there and roll it through the press, and you're making one. Basically, you're making one print. So it's really, it's a transfer method. So all the printmaking is a transfer method. So keep that in mind, because really you're working pretty much in reverse, which is a challenge um, that you have to sort of think backwards. And a lot of times, like Judah says, you'll do a, a drawing front ways and then you'll flip it over and imagine it the other ways. And there's different ways to do that. So, I mean, the, the, the planographic, the, the, the woodcut, plant, that goes way back to the, the Chinese many, many years ago. And in fact, the Chinese, I'll throw in a little art history for you, those prints, when they came to Europe during the Impressionist and the Post Impressionist and Van Gogh, you know, they were looking at these Chinese prints. Not only were they something new, but they were also, the imagery you know, really made those, those artists look at the world a little differently. But if you go around and look at the program, you'll see monoprints, you'll see etchings, you'll see woodcuts, Peter Friori's there, have sort of one of each there. And that's why you get, that's what all the different medium's about. There's a list on the wall back there that sort of explains them, the type's a little small, but it explains all the different things. But basically printmaking is a transfer method, method. And the main thing about it is you can do multiples, but not always. I, when I went to graduate school, I, I came from the old school where we, we did, an, we, what we try to do is do an addition of at least 10. Anything that I did, you do an addition of 10 or more. If you didn't get up to 10, then you know, you weren't a good printer. When I got to graduate school, there were, there were people doing one print and they were hand coloring it and they were going wild. And I'm going, whoa, I didn't even think I'm in printmaking. you want to make multiples. You know And that's what the little addition numbers on some of these will be. Um, a lot of these are this is 12, 12 out of 15. So there's 15. She printed. Uh, uh, John printed 15 of these. And he may have printed 20, but then he pulled out the ones that didn't come out good and said, "This is my edition. I've got 15 of these. They sign them, um, and this is the 12th print out of the 15." So when you're looking at art history and stuff like that, the first one is kind of more important than than number 15. And there's artist proof too. And there's I artist proofs. Yeah. So and then some of these are combinations. So some of these are they put they put uh, um, ink or or um, some sort of surface on it, run it through a press as a monoprint, and then print it on top of that, which is what this print is. How many here are artists that are in the show? Raise your hand. So at some point soon, we're going to ask you to just go to your piece, mm-hmm. okay, and tell everybody what kind of print it is and say a few things about about your print, okay? But I do want to say, Rip, raise your hand. He was a big help. Give him a round of applause. He's also a printmaker. You have the piece downstairs with a little explanation of that serograph there. And your other piece is that, that first wall there is sort of a throwback to classic kind of etching and lithography. Lithography is also you draw on stones, or draw on plates, it's an oil water method, and you dampen your paper and you put it through a press. So, mostly that's why the word pulling prints is. The title, because, and it's sort of narrowed, even though there's so many kinds of ways you can make prints, is really, you know, are you putting it through a press? I had a lot of people, I mean, stamping kind of is like that, but the idea is that we really wanted to cover sort of a lot of the traditional, you know, print making things, um, and um, if it went through a press, that kind of thing. But I think the variety that we have here, I mean, there's silkscreen, William Landau, does it with letters? There's some letter. There's some uh, letterpress letters up here you can look at in the showcase. But um, what else do you think you want to cover, Judith?
5: I think that. Uh, well, a, did anybody have a question? How long does it take? Um, forty-five years.
3: <laughs>
5: <laughs> okay, it's a thing that's been evolving over my entire adult yeah. lifetime yeah. as a printmaker. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe longer than 45. Yeah. I was giving myself a little break. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I started this, it took me about three weeks to do it. Okay. This one took me probably about a month. That's nice. Um,
4: but then you have some that are a little little faster depending on the imagery and the dine. And yeah. Stephen here, yeah. you know, he cut that block. I don't know how long it took. I did a little print for Art of Sixes. It was a small little fish. Mm-hmm. You know, I spent an afternoon figuring it out, transferring it, cutting it to a few minutes. Then you ink it up, and then you... That part is, you know, the brain part is what she's saying yeah. is really the journey. Yeah. And the the print sometimes, unless you have a very complicated... I mean... This is this is this is some people when they go they go all in and yes. that's what that this is. <laughs> but um, we have some very beautiful woodcuts. This is by um, Robin, Robin and Alquist, and you know part of everything too is not only the process but the imagery. I mean, we yeah. have some great. Yeah,
5: yeah, yeah. Great that's a thing. You can get caught up in the process so much and in the mechanics of it and the chemistry of it and all that yeah. that you could you could lose what you're originally trying to do, you know. So you got to always keep yourself thinking about, you know, what am i trying to do? It's it's not just that i'm trying to copy something that's difficult and crazy. It's it's that i wanted to, to produce this this image that's going to be for me exciting. And
4: and the, and the other idea behind art prints is that you can make multiples so that you can share Goya had that whole series, right? Of the um, of the of the Spanish the Spanish America, the, the Spanish War, yeah. and um, you know they were, and he was printing them up almost like flyers, you know, and even Toulouse Lautrec in France with the posters that he mm-hmm. that he did is a printing process. They're all sort of printing process. So it depends. The Rembrandts, you know, then you know Rembrandt takes years to do one painting. He could spend a half a year. You know making a plate and then sell bunches of them at half the price or a third of the price it comes a little from that kind of world okay so we're gonna start we're gonna start in the front here if you can if you can look up in front
3: uh,
4: and I don't know everybody but I met a bunch of you at the opening and uh, uh, so we're gonna start start here give us your name and the, the kind of the kind of print that it is Nice and loud. Introduce yourselves.
3: Please. I'm Michael Pietrowski, and uh, this is a wood block. This is the total opposite of appropriate downstairs. Um, this is a piece of, I think, 16 by 24 plywood that I hand cut in my kitchen on the counter. And um, the most of it's hand cut up here, I did use an electric tool to do this fine work on the the ground. Am I allowed to take this off so they can see it? If you want to, yeah. And it was the first thing that
5: sold at the show, too. It sold before
3: the show even opened. The show
5: wasn't even open yet. He sold it.
3: And uh, Rocky called me a week before. they, They hadn't even hung the show yet. And he called me and he said that you know it's the first piece that sold. He oh, nice. said uh, a friend of a friend came in and said, "Oh, I really want that piece. I don't want to wait for the show. Can I buy it now?" He said yes. And then they said, "How much is it?" I really like that. Sure, they raised the price. <or> price. <laughs> they liked the piece before they even cared. Right, they, they didn't the care was. what the price was. So that was that was really mm. a big step. Up for me. So give him a round of applause. I do, I do want to add one more thing. I've done a series of these where you were talking about doing multiple processes. I've done model prints behind these because this, this is from a photograph that was a sunset and a silhouette of the trees. So I've done a series, some are winter, some are time of day, and because I'm a painter printmaker, and the last thing I want to do is make an addition. <laughs> so I play with the color. So they're all and kind of one of a time? Yes. And when you say, oh, somebody said, oh, I can make multiples, I'm going, okay, I came from painting, so I'd make one painting and spend a lot of time doing one painting. And now I'm going, well, I'm going to go pr- do printmaking, so I don't have all, all the paint, I don't have all this, but now I've got multiples. What do I do with multiples? <laughs> tend kind to of grow. Okay. Thank
5: you. Okay. So my name is Claudine Luxinger, and this is a collaged collagraph print with watercolor. And I did bring the plate in, um, it's which isn't much. I but it. I guess it's interesting that I used tinfoil as the hair for my collaged piece. And it's two of two um, because the first one I, I I don't know if it's right to label it two of two when you cut up the first one to use it as a collage. So getting <laughs> yeah, into yeah, yeah, tech and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah But at this stage of my life it's like whatever. It's whatever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, no. I showed it to my neighbors who are eleven and about sixteen. Um and they told me that I was gender bending when I created this, and I don't know what gender bending is really, uh, but it's up to the viewer whether this is a male or a female. And that's my piece, and a big shout out to Pauline, my framer, who framed this in flame poplar, which is absolutely beautiful. Thank you.
0: We've been listening to an account of the current show in the Loft Gallery at the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance, 37 Main Street in Narrowsburg, New York, and the show is hanging in that gallery until March 14th. And that concludes Making Waves for this evening here at WJFF. Tune in each and every Monday night to hear Making Waves Radio Magazine on your hydropowered, Listener-powered, community-supported public radio station, WJFF.
5: Oh my goodness, they're going to get in trouble. But they did it, and it really taught me a lesson. We would have been here till today trying to work within the system. Sometimes you just have to do it.
2: The words of Leah Chase as read by Janet Dewart bell author of Lighting the Fires of Freedom, Profiles of African-American Women in the Civil Rights Movement. Hear her full interview with Janice Adams, Wednesday evening at 7.
0: And you're tuned to WJFF Jeffersonville and W233AH Monticello. Coming up...